Hello, welcome to Medicine Unbox Voices. My name is Sam Giglani. Here we go in pursuit of conversations about medicine, not just about what it is and what it does, but about what it means, about the whole surprise of human life, its inevitable weathering, and the challenge of how to care for all of us. I'm here at the University of Oxford with Professor Deborah Bowman. Uh, Deborah is a professor of medical ethics and law at St George's University of London. She's written and broadcast very widely on medical ethics and was awarded an MBE in 2017 for her services to the field. She's an impassioned educator. She's a fierce advocate for the place of the humanities in medical education. She's a lover of theatre. She's a runner and has very recently emerged from um, treatment for breast cancer. Deborah, welcome to Medicine Thank and you. Voices. You've spent a large part of your professional life wondering about questions around what medicine ought to do, mm-hmm. alongside the whole business of what we can do and do do, so-called normative questions. What brought you to thinking about those or you know, being being worried by them almost? I think I've been worried about them for a long time. Um, and I think it started probably in this this town, not that far from here. In a Is house. this where you trained? Yeah, oh. and, and in a house in Museum Road, which I've just walked past. Uh, it looks a bit different now. <laughs> uh, better state in all kinds of ways. But what was really interesting was a lot of talk, you know, over coffee and all those sorts of things that you do when you're a student, about what people were seeing on the wards, what they were being asked to do, what sometimes they were asking others to do, although that, you know, that was less common then. Uh, because of the age we were and stage we were. And I was really struck by the distress. I was struck by the contested nature of what what people felt and so the strength of of view. But this was alongside a a really strange thing that, that I also observed, that when people were in clinical practice and training, you didn't hear a peep from them. So the person who was really feisty the night before about what should or shouldn't happen was really obedient on the wards and <laughs> and, and the distress would come later. And so that interested me. I think the 80s was a, a really fascinating time in medicine uh, because uh, Ian Kennedy, uh, Professor Sir Ian Kennedy, did his, he wasn't then, he was just a young feisty lecturer and lawyer, and he did his week lectures on... Um, paternalism really in medicine and there was a shift I I'm a you know I, I I'm a child of the 70s but also the 80s and I don't think it's an accident that it was the time of Thatcher there was a lot happening in the NHS there was a lot of individualism about which I guess prompted me to think about the the bigger questions about the position of care what medicine should and shouldn't be um and, and all of that was against a background of some quite high profile cases. Some some came a bit later. So uh, the Tony Bland case, um, there were there were others kicking around, the Gillick case. Um, and so it felt like medicine was changing, but not overtly. There was this front stage, backstage thing going on. I was doing a lot of theatre at the time and that felt uh, really apposite. And... I guess I was much more interested in that than I was in science. And I've always been interested in what people do with rules, where rules come from, 
Um, one of my favourite books is just a very slim book called How to Do Things with Rules, which implies some some tricksy manipulation, which worries me deeply. Um, so that took me down this path, but there wasn't really a thing called medical ethics. So when you say things were changing, mm. do you mean, <clears throat> I mean, obviously it was a continued period of in- increasing scientific progress and knowledge, yeah. but the dynamic bit was changing and how one, how one decided what one ought to do and who decided was increasingly up for grabs? I think people were increasingly suggesting it should be up for grabs. Right. I don't think it it, it was quite... So, so as I say, there were people like uh, Ian Kennedy and there were others within the profession, really, advocating for change. But it was interesting that it, it was largely professionally led and largely professionally resisted, actually. I'm not sure that it trickled down very much to the way of training. Um, I'm not sure it... it I don't know. I, I think the change was in the ether, but it hadn't really it hadn't really got any traction. But I could feel it. And I, I do mean feel. I could sense it in the air. And I thought, I wonder if there's a way of, of doing more of this. And to what extent do you think... Because you're a professor of ethics and law. Yeah. <laughs> which aren't always comfortable bedfellows and no. there, uh, there is a sense I, I certainly get a sense that doctors will talking about medical ethics they'll gravitate to the law it offers ostensibly concrete answers mm. about what you ought and ought not to do whereas ethics is a sort of fluffy nebulous yeah. endeavour if you were to summarise now what the um, cornerstones of medical ethics would be what, how would, would you be able to do that? Be able to say, here's a framework. So I know what my frameworks are. Um, I mean, ethicists spend we make careers out of arguing what frameworks are best. My framework's better than yours. What principles, um, etc. You yeah. mean? Okay. But for me, um, there are two really guiding frameworks that I, I bring, I suppose, to anything um, ethical. One is virtue. I think medicine, life, is an inherently human endeavour. And because of that, for me, intellectual gymnastics are great, up to a point. But actually, it's it's all about the character and the commitment of the individual and the fallibility of the individual. And so I'm I'm very attracted to... I guess Aristotle, attracted to Aristotle, that sounds weird, um, and and the virtues. And I think that there's something about that way of thinking that puts it puts the person at the centre. But the other the other way of thinking that for me helps me unlock or or gives me a way in that's more resonant is narrative, it's story. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm very interested, always interested. When somebody says to me, Deborah, here's an ethical problem, I really want to hear, so I hear the content as it's presented to me, but I really want to attend to what the story I'm being told is and also some of those narrative tools. Who's telling me this story? From what point of view? What language do they use? When do they slip into metaphor? What 
What are the silences? What's unsaid but part of this story? Who are the characters? Where are the plot points? What's the subtext? And, and that, for me, it, it gives you detail. It gives you granularity. And I suppose um, there's a phrase that I hold in my head in, in my world quite a lot, which is that a lot of what I do is about interrogating the likeness of a situation. So what's this like? Is it a consent situation? Is it a, I don't know, conflict? What is it? But the thisness of it. See, I'm not at all, well, <clears throat> I'm not surprised, but I'm also really gratified to hear you articulate that. But you'd also agree that if I opened a textbook of medical ethics now, I'd get to virtue and narrative at the end of the book. Yeah. There'd be a couple of kind of tokenistic, yeah. I'm being a bit harsh, tokenistic chaps attached to them. The, the, the kind of macho meat of the book would be attached to um, principles that we ought to adhere to, or indeed, you know, how one factors the consequences of one's actions into... Ooh, consequences. consequences. It's all about the consequences, which we imagine, and we never admit we imagine them. Yes, 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 completely. Or, of course, you know, notions of personal autonomy, mm. you know, even even almost distilling all of ethics down into four principles yeah. that everyone can just tot up in any given situation. And within that... Um, framework, and it's really important that we do come back to virtue. The the idea almost is that if you reason well enough, yeah, if you get a bunch of people and you really reason well logically, and you you know you distill the reasoning between you, you will arrive at moral truth or moral mm. truths. Well, that's a load of rubbish, isn't it? <laughs> um, I, I guess. Have I'm, you always felt it's a load of rubbish? Yes. Or is, yes. So at about the time I was getting interested in this yes. world and starting to think how I'd find out that the four principles, as they are known, and you've alluded to them. Just remind us what they are. Uh, autonomy, beneficence, doing good, non-maleficence, not doing harm, and justice. And I looked at them. So Beecham and Childress, two American ethicists, uh, I was going to say they came up with them, but they didn't. I mean, you know, the ancients came up with, with them. Um, the Bible came up with them, maybe, I don't know. But they, they're not new. Um, but in that package, they were quite new. And then Ron Gillen, who is a, a, a really important person in the field of British medical ethics, um, adapted them, I guess, in a very elegant volume called Philosophical Medical Ethics. And that was really important because he made... He made a, a parcel, I guess, for, you know, medicine's about categorising. And, and and in a way, how could it not be? You've got to find a way through and cope. And a way to do that is to categorise. But I think, even early on, I suppose, because I was thinking about law and interpretation and, and rules and, and just seeing the world a bit differently, maybe... I, I couldn't understand how this wasn't just going to be a contested recipe book. And and I didn't understand, I genuinely didn't understand how it was that useful. It seemed to take, you know, a bit of Kant and a bit of Bentham and a bit of rules. Rules, I can't say my R's, so I, I get rules and rules very difficult, find them very difficult to say. Um, and a bit of everything, sort of, and put it in a distilled version. And I thought, well, that's really weird. 
But people did find it useful. And for the first time, I started being invited to go and talk about it. Now, it was always four principles. Yes. And I was a little bit subversive, I think. I, yes. I was always saying, well, how? what does autonomy mean to yes. you? How do you get to that? And why autonomy over this? And is that your definition of harm? And how do you know? And so I was a bit subversive, but I've always been, I, I suppose, a little bit of an outlier in that I've, I've been much more interested in the application, the, the gritty business of living life and making difficult choices than, than many are. Probably a lot less scholarly than many ethicists, much less scholarly than many, many ethicists. Not that bothered about argument. It doesn't seem that interesting to me. Um, when you say not that, not that interested in winning. Oh, certainly not interested yeah. in winning. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know. It all seems a bit performative and a bit nonsensical to me. I, I'm, I'm much more interested. I'm not even that interested in what I see as as false solutions. I, I'm more interested in us being able to bear. There maybe isn't a solution. Well, tell me then, this was the case, this was this was Deborah Bowman four years ago, mm. what you've just described. <laughs> what then happens, and I hope it's all right to ask oh, truthfully about this. Ask anything. So with a diagnosis of breast cancer and receiving neoadjuvant yeah. cytotoxic therapy, surgery, what now on the receiving end of moral judgments and technical interventions does that do to your worldview? It has challenged my worldview. But you know, there's, there's a Beckett quote um, that I'm more myself and less myself. So I, I'm changed and not changed. And that's exactly how it is, it seems to me. So in some ways, it's... It's that thing to have been what I always was. So that's the first part of the Beckett quotes from Happy Days. To have been what I always was. I am still. I still believe in the relational. I still believe in the the, the importance of virtue and kindness, actually, as, as the top of those things. And I've experienced how transformative and vital, and I mean vital in its literal sense, those are. But there have been challenges too, and I think I think some of those have been around autonomy. The question of so having very rudely dismissed the four principles, um, I have thought a lot about autonomy, probably in a more relational way, probably in a more narratively driven way. Could you give me an off-the-shelf definition of autonomy? To self-rule, I guess. I mean, that's its literal translation. But to me, it's it's identity. It's the ability to to be who you are, to to be express, and find that others attend to who you are. So that I guess that's my definition. Self-rule is very much. It's a very um, action-based. It's quite. It's maybe quite macho kind of way of self-rule. It implies that other people are are crowding round to rule you and yes, control it's you. Yeah. Um, it, you know, and 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 actually, I, I, I don't think it is that. It's a sense of self that finds expression and meaning in in encounters, be those medical encounters or 
you know, what so I So it's need. necessarily relational. Yes. Okay. To me, it's, it's always interdependent. For it to express. Yeah, okay. I think so. I think, it's, I think it's quite hard. I mean, I can be autonomous on my own. Of course I can. But, but in my head, when I'm running off on my own, being very autonomous about where do I go and what do I do and what do I think about, I'm carrying people in mm. my head. Mm. I'm carrying obligations in my head I'm carrying sadnesses I'm carrying regrets so and they're all contingent and so it's so for me is that's autonomy and then I guess illness you were saying before just about having dismissed the four principles you were talking about autonomy before I asked you to define it what were you going to say about it it's important it's preeminent yeah so so as you probably know in the four principles autonomy is is the preeminent and it's been really important. It's, it, and, and of course it's important because it situates the patient or the individual at the centre. But the individual, it doesn't always recognise or hasn't always recognised, I don't think, in, in the analysis or in the enactment, that it's not mere, merely about finding out what someone wants and doing that, whatever that is. It's, it's so much more difficult than that it's so much more exposing than that on both parts for autonomy to have meaning you have to reveal yourself and to attend to someone's autonomy you have to reveal yourself is this something that became evident as a result of your treatment it's yeah I think it did I think it did so I I knew intellectually, and I'd like to have said more than intellectually. I'd like to have said I, I, I really had, I, you know, I'd had lots of encounters with clinicians and patients and families that, that made me think I got this. I got this relational interdependence. But the bit I hadn't really got, because I hadn't experienced it, was knowing about and being and how different those are, but also how how unanchored illness makes one. How, how so it disrupts autonomy. Yes, I think it does. And and yet, the, the discourse around autonomy is often about. It, it's often something about if you just dig hard enough and your communication skills are clever enough, you'll get to this. You know, it will reveal itself, this autonomous being. But I was a bit broken and a bit... I didn't know who I was, actually. Um, So, Ben, forgive me for interrupting. So not only does illness potentially disrupt autonomy, but the very um, landscape of that autonomy is evolving. Yes, completely. In front of you. Uh, Yes, yes. And, and the pace took my breath away sometimes of that and I found myself who are you yes who are you and then of course one of the first questions an oncologist like you will ask is how are you Mm. and I just wanted to think say forget the how I've no idea who (laughs) but of course I'm a good patient so we have a very very well thank you yes I'm doing really well this third cycle of chemotherapy is a joy you know it and I perform and I knew I was performing. And I suspect he knew I was performing. Yes. But we had to do it. We had seven minutes. We had stuff to talk about. 
we had to talk about my neutrophils. We had to, you know, decide what the next step was. And on, in so many ways, I think I thought, what is this thing we've just done? It's a necessary thing. It's not a sufficient thing. Right. But could it ever be sufficient? I always wonder about... Then I started thinking, you know, the, the, the sort of deep stagnant pools that if you look at them for long enough become quite beautiful. And autonomy felt a bit like that to me. I thought, well, if I just sit with this changing, shifting self, maybe that's okay. When you say, could it ever have been sufficient, are we there describing material descriptors of what would make it sufficient? Or is there something about a tone of an encounter that would make it perhaps more sufficient? Is there something about the orientation of, let's say, doctor, notionally, or you know, healthcare professional, to patient? Already the language is becoming a bit charged. But that is there yeah. something about how those individuals meet yes I think there is and I think it goes back to narrative yes and virtue and virtue because I think I think my brilliant wonderful wise oncologist also knew what we were doing and I think we both knew and I could sense his attention and that sounds really magical really mysterious but I could sense that he wasn't, we didn't need to talk about it for him to know. And, and so it's a disposition. It's an right. attendant disposition. Yeah. And you can feel it if it's there. And it doesn't need to be avert. And and I was suspicious of whether it, well, not suspicious, but I, I didn't know whether it was in the room until maybe cycle four or five. Yes. And then I knew it was there. And I... And that, just knowing that, is itself more therapeutic than I can describe. So two things spring to mind when you're describing that so um, accurately to me. One, it sounds suspiciously like trust yeah. or, or something like it that's evolved and found and almost um, dug for and won rather than just happened upon. But, I mean, I think also there, we've now stepped a million miles away from the, the logic of reason. But presumably this, what you're describing is a necessary mm. substrate almost upon which to build the reason. You can't do the reason bit without this well. I, I don't think so. I think the reason without this is, it's not grounded in what's going on, which is connectedness or not. And I guess, you know, there weren't really, well, there were, no, there were ethical decisions to be made yes, for me. Yeah, yeah. There were, you know, there were points where actually things, there was a choice in the kind of classic ethical question sort of a way to be made. Mm. So there was a choice about what sort of surgery to have and the extent to which I could ask for something that the, the clinical evidence, the scientific evidence, probably didn't support. And, and that went to a classical ethical dilemma, wants and needs. So simple to say, so hard to unpack. 
But I, we could only reason our way through that together. And I could only reason my way through that because I felt heard and I felt able to say. And it wasn't the way the relationship had evolved by then because I'd had chemotherapy before surgery. So the relationship was really grounded in, in care. It's a big word. Yeah. And I'm, the reason that word strikes me, as you say, is I'm conscious of, I'm conscious of something like, say, Midstaffs as a yeah. contemporary example. You're talking about the 80s, but as, as our contemporary example yeah. of um, institutional, moral yeah. um, impoverishment. The absence of, of care manifest in that, in that example, it it was portrayed very much as an outlying thing. But I just wonder whether it in fact exists on a spectrum with all, you know, maybe tinier absences away from the kind of thing you're yeah. describing. Do you think there's truth in that? Yes, I do. I do. And I think the reason for me that care is so, um, it's so fragile. It's so fragile. It's so hard one and so fragile and, and so... So often we only talk about it in its absence when it is because it's such labor, it's such labor, it's so exposing for both people and for everybody. And, and then you think about that in institutions writ large that you know, I, I sat in that waiting room, I could see the pressure that that team was under and everybody was under, and how. How do you attend? And I could see the differences in the people, and I could see the 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 demands, and I just thought, how how do you sustain this? And I guess that to me is when I start to think, is this possible? No wonder people run away from it, whether they do it consciously or unconsciously, and usually it's a mixture of both. No wonder they run because of the pain of it. The burden of it, the, yeah, dis- okay. the burden, if we go back to where I started with yeah. the distress, it's it's almost overwhelming, I think. And and we don't talk about it, but but it, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. In There's, medicine we're talking here. Yes, yeah. I think so. And <clears throat> maybe in society too, but, but certainly in medicine, that to attend to another... It's such an undertaking. My, is it reasonable to chat? I mean, I so I agree with you, but although we would never find ourselves saying to do that laparotomy well is quite arduous, so I'm going to just, you know, yeah, cut out a few of the, yeah. the middle bits and cut to the chase. Yeah. So there is something in our approach to medicine that already contains a hierarchy in terms of what we... Yeah. What we privilege. Yes. What we privilege and what we prioritise. And I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think even when we privilege care overtly in curricula and exams and, you know, all that stuff that we now do to say this is this is very much about a patient-centred curriculum, that's undone like that by observing an, an encounter where care is, is not the top of the list or where care is undermined and, and that those things do happen um 
And of course they happen. And I, and I think, I do think there's a, I think there are lots of, I mean, there are lots of things we could think about here. I, I think it's often identified as quite a feminised thing. I think um, the way we treat care generally, it's a low tech, uh, not much valued endeavour in lots of ways. But I think that's a bit of a cop-out, actually, in some ways, because I think we don't admit how hard we find it and we don't admit how rubbish we feel when we know we're cutting corners. And I think we all do cut corners in care, um, in our personal lives, in our with our friends, um, and in our professional lives. And that goes to our identity in a way that's really uncomfortable. <clears throat> Whereas... You know, surgery, what do I know about surgery? But it seems to me it's a technical skill that you're trained to do that has a, a value afforded to it and that that is just structured so differently. Do you think, I mean, coming back, these, these, these words all circle each other and we haven't, unfortunately, we haven't even touched the whole business of language and how care surfaces in language, but... So words like virtue, care, empathy, contested words, important uh, words. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> do you think it's possible to teach those traits, to 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 nourish them, to um, recruit to them even? I think it's possible to nourish them. I think it's possible to prioritise them. I think it's possible for them to become a practice. I do believe that. And, you know, that's that's back to old Aristotle again, that you become what you are. And the more you do something, the kinder you are, the, the more you perform kindness, the kinder you become. And I, I do think that. I do think that you can support people to, to nurture those characteristics in themselves and others. What role then without meaning to be too reductive about it, is there a role for other kind of vistas of knowledge in the practice of medicine? You know, what role do the humanities have? I think for me it's about connectedness. Um, medical training, particularly the more, the more scientific aspects, is about distancing yourself it, 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 people become cells they become pathologies they become necessarily so in order to to do that but but it's disaggregating always it seems to me what what people are the humanities not a, and I'm not a big fan of the the humanities is all about humanizing medicine I think I think that's really try to we have no no evidence to suggest that happens anyway but at its best, and that's often quite provocative, the arts and the humanities don't allow you. You might reject the connection, but they put this up as a, as a you, are, you are of this, whether it's a society or a group or the human race or a problem. In a, and it's all about the end of one. That's interesting. And medicine is so rarely about the end of one. And yet, when you get into the consulting room, suddenly for 10 minutes it kind of is. Yes. And and I think 
the other thing I suppose I think is it's about multiplicities and and contradictions. Yes. And the more contradictions and the more ambiguity, the better. Uncomfortable they yeah. may feel. Yes. Yes. And and actually, and careful analysis of ephemera and phenomena rather than things you might see or test for. And for me, that's that's so much at the heart of medicine. What would you say now? Let's say there's someone in a doctor's mess somewhere listening to this on their headphones. What would you say? What would the what would the what would the call to arms, what would the incantation be? I guess even in the question, there's the implication that I want to change someone. Okay. And I don't know that I want to do that. I think what I want someone to do is to find a space to think about where the connections are and the disconnections are in their working life. Yes. And often they might find that space by reading a book or going to the theatre. And I don't mean I don't mean a reading list in the medical yes. humanities where one of the characters happens to be a doctor. High art or don't mean that. Yeah, yeah. Don't mean that at all. Um, and I go look at a Rothko. See what you see and see what you see differently when you look at it repeatedly. So what finding, does it make you feel? Finding sources of meaning. Yeah. Nourishing meaning. Yeah. And nourishing yourself. Hmm. Deborah Bowman, it's been a pleasure as always. Thank you very much for your you honesty for and your wisdom. Deborah Bowman, thank you. Thanks, Sam. Medicine Unbox keeps its large audio and film archive online. Do take a look. But for now, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy it. <laughs>